Father, it is a real privilege to hear from your word in a moment. So speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is really exciting to be able to introduce to you now Travis, and he's here with me right now. Would you give him a huge hand uh, at home as he comes to bring God's word? Thanks, mate. Awesome. Thanks so much, Twig. It's really great to be here with you tonight, church, uh, as we look at part two in our series of exploring the book of Revelation. Each week, we're going through each of the letters to the different churches in the book of Revelation. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to Dan uh, discuss the first letter last week, you get a unique opportunity right now to pause this sermon, quickly go and listen to it, and then make your way back here um, just for cohesiveness um, of the book of Revelation. But um, otherwise, you can catch it another time on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're going to continue tonight um, with the letter to the church in Smyrna. So let's read together from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 10. It says, To the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last, who was dead and became alive, says, I know how you are suffering, how poor you are, but you are rich. I also know that those who claim to be Jews slander you. They are the synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are going to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. Your suffering will go on for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. I wonder if you think of yourself as a half glass full type of person or a half glass empty kind of person. It's a cliched question, I know. Um, it's on every online personality quiz. And of course, everyone knows that the preferable option is to be the half glass full type of person and to consider themselves very much the optimist thinker. Well, this week I came across the term toxic positivity, which at first I thought was satire, given that the word toxic gets thrown around so much has become a bit of a buzzword over the last few years. But toxic positivity is a real thing. It's described as the excessive and ineffective overgeneralization of a happy, optimistic state across all situations. The process of toxic positivity results in the denial, minimization, and invalidation of the authentic human emotional experience. In other words, the glass half full mentality may not be the preferable option after all. And when we think about it, it's true that when we're, when we're going through suffering, it, it, it's not made better when we hear things like, don't worry about that thing, um, think positively, or it could be worse, um, or even things like, don't worry, there's plenty of fish in the sea. They don't actually um, exactly have the best effect on us when we're suffering. I'm sure Bobby McFerrin, singer-songwriter in the 80s, didn't know he was feeding into what would become toxic positivity when he sang, don't worry, be happy. I wonder if those with Hakuna Matata tattoos are starting to feel a sense of regret. I, of course, say all of this a bit facetiously, in part because to me it's fascinating how quickly society can jump um, from one end of the spectrum to the other. And in another part, because of course no fixed outlook on positivity or negativity really works, 
we know as humans that it's much more complex than that. It's about taking the good and the bad together, achieving a balance in that thinking. So if you're out there um, and you're particularly wise, you would have said that um, you see the glass as both half empty and half full. So congratulations if that was you. Uh, you've graduated from this message. You can pause now and you can, you can move on um, with the rest of your night. But the reason I started with that thought isn't to get you thinking about old cliched questions. It's actually to draw your attention to the encouragement and the outlook that Jesus gives here to the persecuted church of Smyrna. If you're a Christian here tonight, then you are well aware that persecution happens when you're a Christian witness. Persecution is in fact not something that we should be surprised by. 1 Peter um, 4 verses 12 to 13 says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. In their recent 2020 report, Open Doors revealed that one in eight Christians worldwide are persecuted for their faith, a figure that has risen from recent years. It's true that Islamic extremism has continued to spread across sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia and Southeast Asia, where violent attacks at the hands of extremist groups have increased. It's true that persecution of Christianity is still very much at large. And whilst us Christians here in Australia might not know that level um, of persecution, we can still come across it in our daily walks, in our families for some of us, communities that we're involved in, in schools and universities, in our workplaces even. So the question tonight for us as Christian witnesses here is not why do we face suffering, but instead what should we do when we suffer? For many of us, we can take suffering to mean that we are not where we're meant to be. And that the suffering that we're, um, that we're having in our lives is actually God's way of calling us out. Coming back to the glass analogy, it can be so easy for us to hedge our Christian identity into either being a half glass full or a half glass empty kind of Christian. Should I be the half glass full Christian whose motto is everything is okay? Don't listen to the negativity, push on. Positivity is everything. Or should I be the half glass empty Christian who leans towards feeling like if things are getting difficult in my life, God doesn't want me to be here. I'm in the wrong place. Let's pack up and go home. So to look at this question of what, we, what should we do when we suffer, we need to look at three sort of sub-questions. And they are, what kind of witness is Jesus actually calling us to be? What is the cost of being this witness? And what is the hope of this witness? So we'll start with our first question. What kind of witness is Jesus actually calling us to be? I remember as a kid going on what I thought were extremely long and boring car trips up to Bundaberg to visit 
uh, my grandparents on the school holidays. On those long car trips, my parents would do as best as they could to set uh, my brother and I up with entertainment so we wouldn't get bored. So we had things like Game Boys, uh, colouring in, books to read, um, anything to pass the time. But these things could only do so much before they themselves became boring as well. But my brother and I knew not to say a word for the next one, one to two hours of the car trip because we knew if we were quiet and well-behaved in the back seat, then we would be able to stop at the Gimpy Matilda truck and travel stop. We honestly thought it was like a five-star resort. So you can understand with, with the great excitement, comfort and relief that I felt when we saw the warm yellow hue of the Matilda sign in the distance as we drove along the long stretch of highway. Well, in Revelation 1, Jesus refers to each of the churches as lampstands. And just as that Matilda sign was for me as a kid on a road trip, a sign of light, warmth and invitation, so is the lampstand. It's a sign of light, warmth and invitation. For the church of Smyrna existing in pre-electricity times, they understood that as the sun went down, the lampstand went up, providing light and warmth for everyone inside the house. The lampstand is inviting, it's comforting. It stands starkly against the darkness. Jesus is telling us that this is the type of witness that we are to be, warm, inviting. Not a blinding light, not a furnace which scolds people, but a lampstand which invites those inside and provides warmth and light. For many of us, witnessing to non-Christian friends and family can feel like we're navigating a minefield. What if they asked what if they ask a question and I say the wrong thing about God? Or what if they see the way I act and think that I'm actually not a real Christian? What if I get found out? And we can second guess every step and wonder if we're doing what we're supposed to do as Christians. It's in this process that our ability to truly be a lampstand becomes stifled. Instead of being warm and inviting, we can become cold and robotic. Instead of being loving and friendly, we can freeze up. I can certainly relate to freezing up when being thrust into certain difficult conversations with friends at university and becoming um, detached and impersonable. It's so important for us in a, as Christian witnesses to not see those we witness to as projects or commodities, as our works in progress, as if as soon as they become a Christian, our work here is done and we move on to the next. No, instead we must love those we witness to earnestly as our brothers and sisters. We need to be willing to lay ourselves down, not even to be seen as self-sacrificial, but in order to truly love. This is a challenge for us here tonight. We can think, we can gain this sense that we need to be blinding lights who act as moral compasses, 
and, and providing direction, which is all well and good, but not actually providing warmth. Or we can, see, we can go to the other end as well and see ourselves as furnaces who end up pushing people away with this incredible heat and lack of invitation and love. You know, it's similar to the Ephesians that Dan talked about last week. If we don't have love at the core of all we do as Christian witnesses, then we have lost our way. Matthew 28, 19 verses 19 to 20 gives us the only ever template for the Christian witness we've ever needed. It says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And what does Jesus say is the most important of these commandments? Matthew, again, Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Self-sacrificial love is what makes the Christian witness so counter-cultural. We must not ever forget to love radically and self-sacrificially. Of course, this is with the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I'm not suggesting that we're doing this on our own accord or in our own strength. It's, it's through the Holy Spirit's help, of course. We can only love as God loves us. But it's this love which makes us into lampstands who stand out in the darkness where others are drawn to. For the church of Smyrna and in early Christianity, the Christians typically understood themselves as primarily Israelites who had witnessed the resurrection of Israel's Messiah and who therefore understood themselves to be radically on the inside of culture. This is important for us as witnesses today to know that they, they loved their culture, this church. They celebrated its beauty and its goodness but in a very unique way, they stood as a critique to the same culture. They lived in the same culture, but they did not do the things that they themselves used to do. They'd been transformed. They'd, they'd met the risen Christ. They were not who they used to be. They understood that as Christian witnesses, they were not the new entering into the old as witnesses, but in fact, the new bursting from within the old. And so what does this look like today? It, it means for us to not build this mentality of us versus them in our places where we witness. Instead, see yourself as cultural insiders who actually know the truth, who know that Jesus is Lord, who know that, they are, that you're saved only by His grace, yet who exist within and celebrate the goodness of your workplace, university, schools, playtime clubs, and also stand out starkly against that culture. This is important to know because the next piece, the next thing we read in this verse, in this letter rather, 
is that we see that the church of Smyrna was doing this really well. They were cultural insiders. They were having great far-reaching effects in their, in their city. But now they were under attack. They were under some serious persecution. Verse 9 says, I know how you are suffering, how poor you are. We can see that they're tempted to leave, tempted to withdraw. The persecution they're receiving is, is taking its toll and they're wondering whether they just throw in the towel. But here's the part, with Jesus, that is not an option. Jesus tells the church, if you are to continue to be a lampstand, if you are to continue to provide light and warmth, you must not come out of the city. You must go further in. You must continue to love, continue to lay your life down, continue to radically follow me. If you are to be this kind of witness, to continue to provide light and warmth, you must not come out, you must go further in. So our second question, we lean now towards, well, what is the cost of this witness? And as I said before, we're starting to see that the cost of, of being a Christian in Smyrna was huge. The letter tells us that these people are going through afflictions. They're going through poverty, suffering, slander and abuse, imprisonment, and then ultimately death. There is a huge cost to being a witness in this city. Now, we need to know that the city of Smyrna was a city of great renown, of high culture, architecture, libraries, theatres, urban planning. Think similar to a, to a modern Paris or a modern Vienna. It was filled with cultural elites. And what was happening was, um, amazingly, these elites who were extremely rich and well-regarded were coming to the church to hear about Jesus and were being transformed. They were finding life not in the things of earth, but in God. And because of their public allegiance to God, to Jesus, um, they were now facing poverty. You might be familiar with Leo Tolstoy, a Russian author who lived through most of the 19th century and into the early 20th century. He's regarded as one of the greatest authors of all time. Um, as a journalist puts it, intellectuals and artists like Tolstoy were the high priests of progress, leading the world towards its ideal future and bestowing meaning on their own lives in the process. Yet, Tolstoy struggled to swallow that, there, that this was all there was to life. He was one of the elite, yes, but he could not shake the hollow emptiness that came with his fame and fortune. Now, you'd be aware in this time period, there was the disparity between the rich and the poor was, was immense. And Tolstoy owned many, many peasants, as did, um, as did all the rich and famous in Russia in those times. Tolstoy remarked that it was rare to find someone of his elite social circle who genuinely believed the Christian faith, while it was rare to find someone of the peasant class who rejected faith. In sharp contrast to his peers, the peasants by and large, and this is a quote by him, accepted illness and sorrow without any perplexity or opposition and with a quiet and firm conviction that all is okay. He said, these folk live and suffer and they approach death and suffering with tranquility and in most cases, gladly. Tolstoy came to searching for meaning in the Christian faith. And when he came to reading of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, 
Tolstoy was transformed. He gave up his life of wealth. He gave away his, the lucrative copyright to his, his works. His personal wealth, he gave it away. He set his peasants free and even worked in the field as one of them. He spoke boldly about social injustice and committed to a life of non-violence. He truly threw himself into a life of counterculture, going from one of the elite to one of the impoverished. The church of Smyrna was filled with, with people that were doing just like Tolstoy did many years later. The rich and famous who became poor because of their association with Jesus. They understood that there was a cost to standing as a Christian counterculture, yet they refused to back down. They refused to go back to their old ways and refused to lose what made them so distinctively Christian. Why? Because they knew that the hope that they had in Jesus far outweigh any persecution they could bear. Jesus sees this in the church and he provides great comfort to them, great reassurance and encouragement. And do you know that in all the letters of Revelation, the letter to the church of Smyrna has no criticism. It's all encouragement and comfort. Jesus says to, this, to these people, he says, I know your suffering, how poor you are. He says, I know what you're going through. Jesus says to these people, and he says this to us tonight as well. If you're going through suffering, he says this to you tonight. He says, I see you. I see the trials you're going through. You do not go unnoticed by me. I'm there with you. And why are these words so impacting? Why are these not just empty words from Jesus? It's because the I know of a crucified God means I know I've been there too. It's one thing to receive comfort from a friend who loves you. It's another to receive comfort from a friend who loves you and has been through your same suffering themselves. Jesus, of course, was persecuted, slandered, ostracized. He physically suffered greatly. And though he rose again, he did feel the effect of death. He knows you're suffering too. He's been there. I love these words from Abraham Cho. He says, The crucifixion is comforting, but it also says something offensive, even scandalous. On one hand, it means Jesus identifies with the victim, but it also means atonement for your perpetrator. Identification with the victim, forgiveness for the perpetrator. Did you know that Jesus died for those who persecuted the church of Smyrna? He died for those who persecute Christians today. He died for those who are persecuting you in this very moment. And so this same community of believers who were suffering greatly, they refused to retaliate because they knew that God's crucifixion meant forgiveness, not only for them, but for their enemies as well. It's a radical, unconditional love. 
And that is the resource that this church is offered and we are offered today. Love which stubbornly refuses to retaliate because he has provided atonement for our perpetrators. And this is where our outlook is completely changed. Jesus does not simply tell the church of Smyrna, he doesn't simply tell us to just forget about our persecution. He's not saying, just be positive, it'll all be okay, don't worry. He deeply understands our suffering. He acknowledges it. He knows it himself because it's important to him. Yet he doesn't linger amidst it because although he suffered greatly and was put on the cross, he rose again and defeated the grave. Ultimately, the grave could not hold Jesus. And his resurrection gives us hope as witnesses, as it did to the witnesses in the church of Smyrna, that though they and we may face persecution, suffering and death, our earthly sufferings are just a blip, just a snippet in the timeline of eternity with him. In fact, he's always been close. God has always been close to those who have suffered and have been persecuted for their faith. In Daniel, we we read of the three faithful Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the golden statue of Babylon as instructed by King Nebuchadnezzar. You may know this story. Their punishment was to be thrown into a furnace so hot that it even killed the king's own soldiers who placed the men in the furnace. Yet when he put them in there, the king looked in and saw not only the three men, but a fourth walking around with them. The son of God, Jesus, protecting them in the furnace. You know the story, the king brought them out and decreed that the God of Israel be worshipped and not the statue of Babylon. God has always and will always be close to those who are persecuted for his sake. So as we, as we finish up, what does this look like practically in our lives? Well, I want to encourage you this week to, to read over this letter to the Church of Smyrna again journal or pray, um, whatever you do in your quiet time, particularly prayer, so important with this as you read the word. Pray about the areas that you are a witness in. Pray for God to use you radically in those places. Pray knowing that this probably means you won't be comfortable anymore, but instead in a far greater way, you'll be forced to draw upon Jesus more and yourself less. And if you are in the midst of suffering as a witness at the moment, know that every battle is a chance for rejoicing because the Lord is with you. Don't withdraw, push in deeper. Spend time praising Him in all seasons. Be sustained by Him, by His love, as you pour out your love to others. Let me pray. Well, great God, we thank you for your words of encouragement to us through this letter. We thank you that you are near to us, that you have given us this mission and not left us just to figure it out, but you have provided the method and you walk with us as well, great God. Help us to count it a joy every time we face persecution, every battle, in fact, 
because we know that you are with us. And Lord, we pray right now for those who are persecuted in our world. Lord, we pray that you would draw so near to them that they would be sustained by your spirit, that you would be in the fire with them, protecting them, Lord. Help us to share in their faith as well, Lord. Help us to continue praying for them and standing by them. Help us to love those you have called us to love, Lord. In your son's holy name, amen. Church, let's come and worship him now. Let your faith be stirred by these words of great promise in this next song. Let's sing together now, church. Father, we just thank you for your truth and for your word. And uh, thank you for your promise as well that you are with us always. Even in those moments where we feel like we're in the fire, great God, you are with us and we can trust you with our lives, great God. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, it has been so good to have you as part of our service, online service tonight. Uh, what an awesome word for us that, uh, and I just pray that this week, wherever you are, uh, wherever God has called you to, that you'd continue uh, to be having an impact for Him as He uses your life. If you'd like to find out more, feel free to email through to us, hello at bridgman.org.au, and uh, we'd love to get in contact with you. Have an awesome week, and we'll see you next time. Hey, thanks so much for joining us on our online services today. If God has spoken to you at all, please email us at hello at bridgman.org.au. We'd love to connect with you. We'd love to do the life journey. If you have a prayer request, make sure you email to prayer at bridgman.org.au. We pray you're incredibly blessed and we look forward to connecting with you soon.